Terra incognita speculator. Terra incognita speculator. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's featured writer is Matthew Trelew. Matthew's works have appeared in a number of magazines, both in Australia and elsewhere, and his story for TISF, The Beast Machine Fableau, conjures the early days of the Age of Enlightenment, when the line between science and alchemy, reason and the irrational world of the occult, was not as clearly drawn as one might wish. Leaning over his cluttered workshop bench in a moment of whimsical reverie, the tinkerer held up a skeletal lion's paw in one hand and with the other flicked away at its retractable claws. "'Tis mine, truly, as lion alone,' he muttered as he pulled at the first. It flipped back feebly, and he prodded the next. "'Also the second to me should belong,' he said, "'by the right of the strong, and again as the bravest the third, "'and whoso might but touch the fourth. "'His pointer finger on the quaternary claw he gazed around at the corpses, models, automatons and skeletons that occupied his small vault in various states of assembly, as if daring them to impinge on his lion's share. Then suddenly he shouted, I'll choke him to death in the space of a breath! He looked around as if he might have startled someone with his roar, but of course he was alone, but for his assorted simulacra. Only from the very corner did he hear a small commotion, a peep from one of his replica rats, programmed to frighten at loud noises, and various squeaks and shufflings from some real claimant of the murid species, who did the same by nature. He smiled and placed the paw back among the other leonine parts, arranged in the rectangular space he had freed from the litter. They rested atop the large image he had copied from Perrault's memoirs, each organ corresponding to its two-dimensional representation and indexed with its alphabetised nomination. Esophagus, upper and lower jaws, heart and lungs, etc., of course, he had by needs amended the illustrations with his own observations, taken, as the philosopher suggested, during his own dissection of a lion, and purchased, as his own wits made possible, from a German animal trader of ill repute. Thus revised, the sketches had heretofore served him well in the construction of his numerous lion machines. But this latest creation, which he hoped would serve in his tableau of the lion beaten by the man, as retold in Book Three of La Fontaine's Fables, had thus far eluded his skill. To have the beast converse with its human mockers was one thing. Long had his animals held forth loquaciously on all variety of topics. But to have it paint a picture of a lion defeating a man in combat? Something in the mechanics of the African king's digits prevented the easy gripping of a brush. But oh well. He had never realistically expected that display to be ready by today's fate. There was more than enough already on offer. By next month, however when it was rumoured that the king himself might attend the tinkerer's now famous fableau rather than just his envoys. Hopefully by then he would have solved the problem of the opposable clause. No doubt, for never before had his artisanry been hindered for any great period. Well, not at least since he had perfected the techniques which made of his beast machines not only the most flawless copies of their wild counterparts, 
But what is more, able further, in seeming contradiction of the very principles of their creation, to speak the most perfect king's English, as if, and here was where controversy now followed his every step, thus having proved themselves capable of language and reason, it might be supposed that the things possessed souls. The tinkerer, of course, knew such to be nonsense, but he nonetheless delighted in the infamy it afforded him. He pulled his timepiece from his pocket and opened the embellished face. An hour and a quarter past noon, the fob said to him. Jolted thus into action, the tinkerer gathered some items and emerged, squinting up the stairs of his workshop. Whereas below lantern and diffused sunlight competed to be the most ineffectual source of light, here it was the full brightness of day, and he blinked his way along the building wall and across the commons until he came to the Baroque garden in which his displays were assembled. He smiled in satisfaction. Already a goodly crowd was taking shape. Presumably the servants at the estate's entrance had duly been gathering the nominal fee. With the minor fablo already parroting, and the major production set to begin at two o'clock, he had less than an hour to check upon his toys, to ensure they continued to function properly and that nothing had befallen them at the hands of the weather, the wilds, or the growing numbers of would-be saboteurs. Cartesians and anti-Cartesians, poets and rationalists, all seemed to find something of offence in his displays. But beyond simply smashing the machines, which he easily repaired, there was little they could do. The only fellow who knew his secret had been left, fittingly, he thought, in the bottom of a well with a goat. He shuffled closer to a group which stood before one of his earliest dioramas. In it, Renata costed a black-feathered bird in whose beak was a morsel of cheese. To the tinkerer's delight, they laughed as the raven, flattered by the fox, opened its mouth to perform its song, and the fox started in to gather the cheese thus dropped, before turning to deliver some pithy advice to his dupe. "'What wondrous fabulations!' those gathered cried. "'What buffoonery! Surely he is a scientist-poet! Such a marvel of artifice! Animal machines that speak!' The tinkerer moved on quickly, lest they recognise him. At the next fablo, another group also chortled as the fox, unable to reach some grapes, concluded that they were sour anyway. Next were two cages, each holding what to all inspection appeared a monkey. A sign between them challenged the sceptical viewer to distinguish the automaton from the real animal. Before it, two men dutifully contradicted each other as to which ape was the more authentic. Following this display of his cleverness, the tinkerer passed more fablo, the wolf and the dog, the cat and the rat, the lion and the gnat, and the wolf accusing the fox before the monkey, all of which seemed to amuse, at the very least, their audience. He paused before his favourite, the wolf-turned-shepherd. The tinkerer loved to watch as his wolf narrated clearly his attempts to disguise himself as a shepherd, but then, when it came time to imitate the shepherd's voice to drive away the sheep, suddenly found himself able only to cry pathetically in his own wolfish tones. The crowd laughed at the irony, for of course his wolf machines were perfectly able to mimic human speech, as the narrator had just proved. Contrary to the moral of that fable, there was no leakage of deceit in the tinkerer's fablo. That was something special, but it would be outdone soon when he would present his maiden performance of the two rats, the fox and the egg, La Fontaine's famous address to Madame de la Sablière on the vicissitudes of Descartes' controversial philosophy. Then what next, he thought? The lion beaten by the man? Of course. But afterwards? Perhaps it would be possible, rather than having separate automatons in an independent tableau for each fable, to have a single model of each creature perform different roles across many fables, changing between each act like a real actor, each species coming forward as their symbolic role was required. Such would surely be the most complex feat of engineering ever accomplished. <laughs>
he resolved that it was his alone to achieve. He had travelled far and wide, had experience in all methods of industry and engineering when it came to the production of moving machines and animal automatons. In his tours throughout France and Germany, he had witnessed the famed fountains and grottos of Salomon de Caus, in which singing birds and other hydraulic beast machines provoked wonder in their estate owners and made of their creator a very rich man. But he had gone far beyond de Caus's mechanisms, as also his wealth, perfecting the hydraulics with singular fluids of his own discovery and extraction, and augmenting them with cogs and clockworks of the most intricate design. After all, what need did he have of compressed water to power his animations, when he could control the very esprits and mots that worked in the blood, brain and organs of animal bodies? It was the other, more clandestine strand of his research that, after much furtive travel through Europe's occult underground and Hebrew diaspora, had provided the key to this final and infinitely valuable piece to his puzzle. One day, he sometimes hoped, he would also master the esprits animo of humankind. He knew to what use such knowledge could be put, though thus far their complexity had proved itself beyond his artifice. Before him, a group of philosophers, aesthetes and other dilettantes traded words as they watched his displays. He recognised a few of them from the city's salons and cafes, where the existence of animal minds was currently debated vociferously. He never felt obliged to stoop so low as to engage in their merely academic disputations, but he did enjoy to listen. Surely you do not suggest, scoffed one young mustachioed philosopher, that beasts can speak? It is the purest folly. His interlocutor, clad in an ornamented hat of the latest fashion, held out his palms. And I would agree, had I not but seen it for myself. Do not mistake me for that fool Montagna, who followed the ancients in supposing animals to speak a language we do not understand. Of course the song of a bird or the barking of a dog simply express the animal passions and are not to be confused with human speech through which reason speaks. But the automatons here, they speak properly and tell fables. That is precisely the point. He has created beast machines, programmed mechanical animals that demonstrate that it is only through the voice of human reason that animals can be made to speak. As Descartes shows us, animals are nothing more than machines. It seems, scoffed a priest among them, that our friend Peterson looks upon Cartesianism as the very embodiment of reason, and thinks himself, added another, the very embodiment of Cartesianism. Chortles rippled the company, except, of course, for his very body, mute clock that it is. One fellow snorted at that. Peterson simply gazed upon them with his left brow, raised almost perpendicular to his right. You may mock, gents. Indeed we do! But my argument stands for itself. That animals are mere clockwork is demonstrated before your very eyes. These so-called speaking voices are simply the result of bodily movements, mechanical actions like the jerking of a limb, all perfectly understandable as an effect of motion, subject to nature's laws like the rest of the extended world. Granted, returned his original opponent, but the fact that through such mechanisms he is able to produce the equivalent of human speech, do you not see the reductio ad absurdum thus created? I am afraid one of the premises of your precious Frenchman must be rejected. May I suggest, perhaps, that of the uniqueness of human reason? But they do not speak reason, but nonsense, fables such as any artist could conjure. Only poets and fools would still imagine beasts who speak. Not imagine, create! Nothing but irony and trompe l'oeil. Nothing but, is there anything of more consequence? Happily lost in the to and fro of their argument, the tinkerer was surprised to find his arm being tugged almost from his body. He looked down to see one of the urchins in his employ, 
his regular dishevelment reduced for the occasion to a mere hint of scruffiness. Me lord, me lord, come quick. There's someone well, what's to interfere with your animals. What, boy? The tinkerer gave him a short clip about the neck, if only to stretch out his overyanked arm. You were to stand guard. Yes, my lord, but you see, you said to me, if another what wants to pay me to let them pass, then I... What I said, lad, in a clear understatement, was that you should at least pay me the courtesy of informing me, so that I might have the opportunity to match or better their bribe. But before even finishing his sentence, he could see from the urchin's face that he had, of course, already taken the bribe before coming to warn his master. Reminding himself never to work with children again, he rushed to the grotto where his star performance was set aside. There he saw a most terrific spectacle. Next to his most complex creation yet, the fox who was shortly to narrate his crowning tale, stood the weed-thin silhouette of his rival, Renoir. By all rights he should have been deceased, his bones mingled in tepid water with those of a goat. But here he stood, leaning over with his treacherous mouth by the fox's large ear, whispering something. He, the only other living being to know the tinkerer's secret of the esprit animaux. The tinkerer rushed forward, uttering vengeful profanities, but found himself stopped short by a sabre point at his throat. Renoir continued to whisper his disruptive magics into the fox machine, an exultant smile playing at his eyes, the blade casually abutting his limp-seeming wrist. Shocked and enraged as he was, the tinkerer knew better than to challenge him. Foxy the frog may be, but, the scars on his chest reminded him, wolfish too. He had first come across Renoir during his continental travels, on a visit to some minor prince's menagerie. There, to one side of the animal so rationally displayed, tabulated according to their characteristics, this broomstick of a Frenchman had set up his farcical pageant. Come one, come all, he had cried, to see for La Fontaine's fables performed by real live animals. The tinkerer had laughed as Renoir's pathetic beasts were set upon the stage, so disgracefully clothed and prodded. Not a single one performed as wished. They dumbly ran, hid and moped in corners, fought one with another, fell asleep, shat and pissed, and even died, failing to live up to their true symbolic meanings. It was an absurd spectacle, but it had set the tinkerer to thinking, and then to much work, and subsequently to wealth and fame. When next they crossed paths, Renoir had got in his head the idea of a most preposterous disputation, following which they had contended many times until the tinkerer thought his final victory. But now... He breathed in deeply, watching his fablo evaporate before him. I should never have given the opportunity of escape, he said. Renoir could not resist turning momentarily from his infernal whisperings. You, of all people, should have known that I would live up to the fable. He once more poked his large nose into the fox's ear. You only ever failed. The tinkerer was shocked from his retort by a figure slamming into Renoir from outside his vision, knocking the Frenchman into the ground and away from the fox. The tinkerer jumped up to rescue his creation, only to find the sabre once more slashing at him. He leapt back to see Renoir now stood with his wits full about him, having grasped the really and screaming street urchin by the neck. He brought his blade to the boy's stomach and made to pierce him when, thwack, when Ra crumpled to the ground. The street boy scrambled away. Behind them stood a blue coat, sap in hand, seemingly disgruntled from the exertion. The king's private royal guard. That meant... Good sir, the rather large and serious minder said as he leant down to gather Renoir over his shoulder. His majesty does look forward to your performance. You will not make me tell him that this minor interruption has spoiled his afternoon's enjoyment, will you? N no, of course, he said. Good. The guard trundled off with Renoir doubled at the waist. Put him in the cage with the monkey, yelled the tinkerer after them. Either one. He turned to his fox, strewn on the ground. It seemed undamaged in form, but inside, 
what new animal spirit words had his rival introduced. With much trepidation, he pulled gently on the fox's tail to begin its routine. The fox opened his mouth and recited, The great are like the maskers of the stage. Their show deceives the simple of the age. At that line, the tinkerer knew just what evil Renoir had performed. The fable of the fox and the bust? He shook his fist after his dispatched rival. You thought to embarrass me in front of the king, mocking his majesty and insulting us both? In his hands, the fox continued. All their glory is a semblance thin. The tinkerer struck out, silencing it before it could finish the tale with that perfidious remark, comparing lords to brainless busts. What to do? He reached for his fob just as the bells pealed twice from the nearby chapel. He cursed. Already it was time for the performance to begin. There was nothing for it. He must overturn Renoir's vile words. Never before had he composed a spree and a mow in such haste. He remembered the night he had wrested the secret from that Jew in a Parisian back alley. The feeble Kabbalist had desperately muttered his own combinatorials in a last-ditch attempt to induce his golem to defend him. But the superior had prevailed. That whole episode, particularly the unfortunate accident that had subsequently befallen the poor man, still occasionally woke the tinkerer at night. But he comforted himself with the thought that, like his beast machines, it had yet to be proved that Jews were capable of rising above their base desires to incarnate human reason. He, now, must do better. The performance must go on. The king was waiting. He ran through the fable in his mind, imagining the movements of the fox's tongue required to make the sounds and translating them backwards into the motion required to pass as animal spirits from his brain. Not that foxes have language, of course. Rather, these words were simply part of the fox's machinic body, cogs themselves in the minute clockwork of his automaton's brain, all of which was continuous with the extended world. If he could properly compose the code of esprit animo, the melange of fox whimpers and human tongues, then his cipher would enter the pineal fluids he had extracted from various test subjects and translate itself, purely through force of motion, however complex, into the hydraulics of its body and thus to its mouth. His lips at the fox's pointy ear, he cleared his mind, played about with his tongue, and felt the spirit of that guttural language pass through him. He awoke to the bruised grin of his young would-be rescuer. My lord, my lord, the peoples are getting impatience. The tinkerer jumped up and grabbed his automaton. He looked about. The others, the stag, partridge, beavers, the rats, the egg. In place, my lord, we just need yourself. He raced back to the main arena where the crowd gathered, among them the concealed king. Thankfully, one of his servants had had the presence of mind to replay the mice and the owl, with his wonderful wise bird flying above the crowd, carrying his trapped legless mice and daring the Cartesians among them to pronounce him a mere machine. The tinkerer rushed to place his fox among the other performers and withdrew behind the fountain into his control booth. Sat upon his chair, levers and pedals at hand, he was much, he liked to think, like Orpheus with his lyre, or, to be more Christian, like Adam in the garden, or even, to be truly modern, like the soul in the pineal gland. Hopefully his reason had prevailed, properly governing the performance of his fox. He looked up and searched through the crowd to perhaps caps a glimpse of the king, but, unable to find him, gave up, deciding that after all it was best not to know. He cast his eye over the automatons, got a gap-toothed smile and crooked thumbs up from his serving boy, and nodded to himself. All was ready to begin. He pulled at a lever, at which what seemed a root in the ground yanked the fox's tail, whose pointed maw began to move in strange mockery of human speech. The tinkerer waited with foreboding, but the fox's monologue began as designed, 
with flattery for the lady to whom the fable was addressed. As always, the crowd rippled with delight, as subsequently did he, at the speech of an animal supposed to produce only repetitive noises. The narrator Fox went on to mention a certain controversial new philosophy that he might contest. Perhaps you have not heard of it, he said with discreet politeness, as of course she had. My verse will tell you what it means. They say that beasts are mere machines, that in their doings everything is done by virtue of a spring. No sense, no soul, nor notion, but matter merely, set in motion. Just such the watch in kind, which joggeth on to purpose blind. The tinkerer breathed a sigh of relief. His spirit words had worked. The beast spoke as intended. He imagined how it would irk La Fontaine to see his anti-Cartesian speech performed by such stupid machines. And so the fable progressed, mocking the celestial Descartes before beginning its examples of clever animals. The hunted stag, the artful partridge, the industrious beavers, the military creatures. His beloved animaton scampered dutifully about the arena, even as the vulpine raconteur described them and the tinkerer pulled levers here and there for background effects, pumped hydraulics to initiate the fountain, pressed buttons to set off his other automatons. He found that as he worked, the movements came with little thought, as if second nature. The ingenuity of brutes demonstrated, the fox went on to nonetheless distinguish humans, beasts perpendicular, without for all that denying animals their minds, or esteeming men too highly. The tinkerer smiled as his animals spoke, perfectly, truly, unlike any real mute beast and with each word they demonstrated the genius of his artifice, beyond anything nature had produced, beyond even the greatest works of scientists or poets. Orpheus indeed, he thought as he pulled at his levers. I have decoded the grand book. I sing the song of the universe. I have squeezed from nature her very secrets. The crowd laughed at the rat on its back, holding an egg twice its size as its cohort dragged it away by the tail. Giving up the chase, the fox turned once more to its audience and remarked, on the ingenuity of the scurrying pair. The tinker returned to concentrate on his controls. The climax was near, when La Fontaine's own theory of the soul would be illustrated by the analogy with fire. He hoped his pyrotechnics had not been tampered with. But as he reached for the next lever, and the fox ventured to compare animals to infants, he felt a strained impulse in his mind. As the fox spoke so plainly close to his own voice, he heard the whimpers of a fox in his head, one he had dissected, perhaps, or its mother, which he had killed in order to remove the whelp to his own collection. These were the cries with which he composed the esprit animo, the animal spirit words, made up of bestial yelps and grunts, meaningless nonsenses, as well as verbs and nouns from English, French and German, Greek, Latin and Hebrew, and strange tongues only Pentecost had seen. They welled up in his mind, and before he knew it, he was babbling in a mechanical idiom. Pressing random buttons, and his fox was babbling too, the other animals running madly about the stage. Arcs of water sprayed from his fountains, and a firecracker squealed its way into the afternoon sky, booming a shower of burnt orange sparks over the audience. His fableau, his crowning performance. The crowd dispersed as some ran off, caught in a frenzy, while others commented one to the other in ripe amusement. Three monkeys cackled excitedly from two cages. 
To one side, the tinkerer saw the king's bodyguard leading away a man who shook his head in discontent, and he looked up to see that the group of philosophers on whom he had previously eavesdropped now stood over him. "'Tis almost as if,' one said, "'in his very attempts to transcend the beasts, he has been reduced to their level.' Another laughed. "'Too true. Between the scientists' machines and the poets' fancies, they leave no room for actual animals.' Thankfully for us, said a third, all machines, like all stories, indeed like any creation, can in the end be broken down. The group departed, nodding sagely. From the corner of his eye, the tinkerer saw that within one of the monkey cages was another skinny ape who railed at him in an animal gibberish that he somehow nonetheless understood. Listen here, you stupid dunce. Beasts are neither clockwork machines nor artful speakers of poetry's whims let alone heaven forfend both at once. Terra incognita reviews. This month's review book is The Terminator Gene by Ian Irvin. The Terminator Gene continues best-selling fantasy author Ian Irvin's gritty environmental spec-fic thriller, which began with The Last Albatross, reviewed in TISF number 6. And while we're recalling past reviews, reading this book reminds me of my review of Maria Quinn's The Gene Thieves. Check out TISF number 7 for a reminder. Because The Terminator Gene succeeds in every possible way that the gene thieves failed. As a scientist and accomplished specfic author, Irvin uses the science of climate change in a convincing and accurate way to create the world of the Terminator gene. The ecological developments, portrayal of social upheaval and changes to the coastline of Australia, the UK and America are well realised, rather than just being paid lip service to. Irvin's characters are also well-rounded and believable, delivering dialogue in a naturalistic way that the gene thieves fail to do. And most importantly, the action is high stakes, well-researched and totally believable. Earth, daughter of Gemma, who featured as the heroine in The Last Albatross, is grown up now and facing a brutal life in post-Deluge Australia. Made a scapegoat by an increasingly hostile government, she falls between the cracks of a disintegrating society and is scooped up by its least attractive underbelly, a cross between the slave trade and the prostitution racket. But Earth has hidden value and finds herself snatched away and deposited in a sinking London, where she uncovers a plot that will lead to the destruction of humanity. This is where the action takes off, and Irvin's knowledge of scuba diving is shown in a beautiful sequence of claustrophobic dives in the forgotten tunnels of the city, as Earth gets caught up in a robbery that goes badly wrong before being smuggled to America and ending up in a New Orleans that's about to fall victim to a perfect storm that will make Katrina look like a mild squall. Read the Terminator gene and enjoy a solid action thriller that ticks all the boxes. Four stars. Terminator Gene by Ian Irvin is published in Australia by Simon & Schuster. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of their publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2010. This podcast 
is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.